I won't ask for a show of hands of how many people have never read Nahum before this past week. <laughs> we hadn't started the recording yet, so no one saw your hands up. <laughs> Chris had started. Oh, Chris started. All right. I guess this is week 12, but we're uh, on the 10th prophet, Nahum. So you saw his little sign against Nineveh. So one of the features of the prophets is um, frequently their oracles against other nations. And in the case of Nahum, his entire book is an oracle against just one nation. And uh, this is um, the Assyrians and against their uh, capital, their uh, um, place of power which is the city of Nineveh, which we have talked about a little beforehand in um, the book of Jonah. So, um, so we're told that, that this is uh, the oracle given to Nahum the Elkishite. We're, we're not sure where that is. So it, it may be close to Jerusalem, so a Judean. And it seems that the, right, like the, the while he's giving a prophecy against Nineveh, that he's, he's also speaking to uh, the people of Judah and the leadership of Judah as well. Um, as uh, Stefana said, this is about the fall of Nineveh. By the way, there, there is a, a town in Iraq called Al-Kosh that has a shrine and purports to have the tomb of uh, Nahum located there. Mm. But... That doesn't necessarily mean that Nahum is from uh, Iraq. I, I think he's probably a Judean. Um, so dating, we, we know it falls within that roughly 50-year time span that I've got there, 664 to 612, because within the, within the prophecy, he's going to refer to an event that is the fall of Thebes. We'll talk about it a little bit later but he's going to refer to an event that already happened. And that happened in 664 BC, roughly. And, uh, and then he's prophesying, as we've already said, about the fall of Nineveh as if it is in the future. And it occurred in 612 BC. So some, we know the prophecy uh, is sometime between 664 and 612, probably uh, during the reign, I think during the reign of Josiah in Judah, he reigned between 640 and 609. Um, and that was a time, you'll recall, a time of uh, religious revival and, um, and relative, well, let's say relative strength for Judah, though Josiah himself rebels against Necho of Egypt and dies in a, in a battle, ultimately. Um, also, though, during the reign of the king of Assyria by the name of Ashurbanipal, um, who you're going to hear about in a video or two uh, in just a, a minute or two. So we've got a couple of videos to show this week. Uh, Ashurbanipal is the grandson of Sennacherib. And again, these are a lot of names, but you'll recall when the Assyrian king brought his army down to Jerusalem, when Hezekiah was king, they threatened to take the city. They taunted God and an angel uh, struck down the army and they had to leave they were unable to uh, fully take the city or actually uh, raise a siege against the city. So this is his grandson. Um, and uh, also, if you, in terms of thinking about the divided kingdom, we've been talking a, a lot about Israel in the north. Uh, Israel fell 
uh, Samaria itself, the capital of Israel, fell in 722 BC. That was under Ashurbanipal's uh, great-grandfather, Sargon II, and Sennacherib actually uh, took over the, the uh, rulership of Assyria in 722, the same year that uh, the, the, the Israelites were taken into captivity. So this, what we're looking at is roughly some, about, about 80 years, probably, after the fall of the Northern Kingdom at this point and um, roughly uh, 40 years after uh, Jerusalem had been threatened. So then you'll notice in this book, there's no more talk about Samaria or Bethel or anything. It mentions Judah a couple times, um, but we are, you know, the, the other side now of the, of the Northern Kingdom, so. So, so, the reason we thought that was interesting to show, there are a few things. There are references to lions in, in uh, Nahum's oracle. Also, though, the, the, to give you a sense of the, the city, the grandeur of it, and the, uh, let's say, the, the expression of power of the, the king as a, a sort of demigod-like figure um, who is a provider to the people, and yet... Uh, right here at the beginning of Nahum, you have, you know, the, the juxtaposition uh, of the Lord as the true God, right? So it, Nahum's oracle begins really with praise of God and, as I've written there, warning uh, of God's, uh, sort of like a warning of God's justice and judgment, uh, both for, obviously for Assyria, because it's an oracle against Nineveh, but also I think a warning for Judah, um, because coming out of their, uh, their near uh, seat with Hezekiah, they had two bad kings, uh, Manasseh and Ammon, and now I think, now, Josiah, who is a reforming king, and there's always the danger of falling back into uh, the ways that they have done. So notice who, how is God portrayed? He's a warrior. He's, uh, he's just, he's wrathful, but he's also, uh, slow to anger. So, uh, this week I read a kind of an article that called Nahum, the poet laureate of the minor prophets. And maybe you found this while you're reading Nahum, that the way that he describes things is very evocative. So the first eight chapters are overwhelming and powerful. So you see how the king of Assyria is sort of taking to himself, um, you know, godlike qualities and he portrays himself as um, as God and, you know, nobody will ever defeat him. And so the Lord comes painted by Nahum here as a powerful warrior he's angry he is so mad he comes in his wrath he's fierce he's vengeful against his foes he's furious um the the uh wording in verse three um is reminiscent also though of exodus 34 when god talks to moses and he he defines himself you know he's gracious and compassionate and he is slow to anger. So anger does come, but he's slow to anger. And when his anger is aroused, he will work justice. And it says that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And now 
Um, you know, he was slow to anger. He gave them a chance un, uh, under Jonah, who he sent as a messenger. He pursued Assyria through his prophet. And now it's time for the anger and it won't turn back. There is, there's no hope for him. He's portrayed like in, um, in those passages that we saw those, those doxologies in Amos, you know, the Lord comes, his path is in the whirlwind and the storms. He has dust and, and mountains that are under his feet. Um, the, the earth just melts as he, as he comes. He's sovereign over all creation. It obeys him. It fears him. And he is wrathful now against his enemies. So he is a powerful warrior, but it says he's good to those who take refuge in him. It's like a, a big, powerful warrior who's aroused now, but with one hand, he's protecting his people as he goes against the enemy of Assyria. That's, that's kind of how I uh, imagine him. And, and God says he will now remove this oppressor. Once they are pushed down, they'll never get up again. They'll never have a second chance to be uh, an oppressor of his people. And uh, it's especially ominous um, verse uh, 14, as God addresses himself to the king, you have no offspring to carry on. Your, your, your name will be wiped out. Your idols and your images will be cut off from the house of your gods. And then he says, and I am digging your grave. Wow. All right, preach. So, <laughs> so uh, one of the things I want to point out here is at the beginning is the, the, the references to covenant language. So like Stefana pointed out, when, when, uh, when there, this allusion to Exodus 34, that's covenant language that God says uh, as, the, as the people are, are uh, receiving the law, as God is revealing himself to Israel, and as they are being um, uh, commissioned to proclaim the Lord to the world, right, through through their establishment as his people and as a nation. Um, this, so this is this uh, message of Nahum. It, it, it shows that the Lord Yahweh is the God of all peoples because even it even applies to the Assyrians. Um, also uh, in verses 12 through 15, then this sort of turn back to Judah and says, you know, we've, we've punished you, but now you'll be bothered no more by the oppressor. That is in this case, a reference to Assyria. Um, it's again, an offer by God for covenant, uh, for a good covenant relationship for the people of Judah, in this case, to be the covenant people. Um, and of course, we, what we know happens in the future is that they fail at that. And they ultimately turn away. And uh, just as we're, we're going to see a, another video in a, in a couple of minutes about the reliefs from a battle, um, just like you saw in that previous video, those reliefs, it's like carvings into the wall. Um, that's what ends up happening inside the temple. You have reliefs like that inside the temple with carved images uh, that are seen as idolatrous. And Jeremiah preaches against that. Uh, but we'll talk about that. I think in, in later days. So, uh, so in, in chapter one, then he sets it up by praising God, uh, talking to Judah as God is going to protect you, uh, from Assyria. And then chapter two, he introduces the fall of Nineveh. So chapter two is really what we call a taunt song. It's a mockery of Nineveh. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, all right. Well, you go ahead. 
well, so, so what we're going to see in uh, chapter two is um, a description of the fall of Nineveh. Also, it's going to bleed into chapter three. And so just to give us a sense of uh, what the Assyrians are like, I know we've seen a, a little bit of a video when we looked at Jonah, uh, but this is going to talk a little more about uh, their military campaigns and how they conducted themselves. And I, I think what I what I get from this too is if you look and see kind of the the confusion of battle, um, because that's what Nahum paints really well in um, chapters two and three. And I think that this guy who talks a bit slower, <laughs> uh, these are these reliefs are in the British Museum, and he's going to explain one of them um, on the Assyrian defeat of the Elamites. Hello, I'm exhibition curator Gareth Brereton. And this week, we'll be discussing this masterpiece of Assyrian art. This is a carved wall panel cut from limestone. And this once decorated a room in the Southwest Palace at Nineveh, Ashurbanipal's first residence. And it is an important document of a war between the Assyrian army and the Elamites of Southwest Iran. So first, I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory about how this battle happened, why war broke out between the two kingdoms. So the Kingdom of Elam was located in southwest Iran, and that was at Assyria's southern border. When the King of Elam died, his anti-Assyrian brother took the throne by force. The true heir to the throne fled to Assyria to get Ashurbanipal's protection. He was a political refugee at Ashurbanipal's court in Nineveh. The anti-Assyrian king, the usurper, Ulteoman, wanted his return, but Ashurbanipal denied him. It was obviously useful for Ashurbanipal to have a pro-Assyrian royal family in his care in Nineveh. So Ashurbanipal sent his army to meet the Elamites on the bank of the river Ulai, and this is the depiction of the battle taking place. So on the left-hand side, the Assyrian army has broken through the Elamite battle lines. The Elamites are in panic. They're fleeing down a hill, they're tugging up their beard, they're throwing their weapons in the air. It's a real chaotic scene. And the Assyrians, who wear better armor, have better weapons, are pushing the Elamites towards the river. And the river Ulai cuts across the scene. And the Elamites gradually get pushed and pushed and pushed, and they fall into the river and drown with their horses and their carts and their weapons. So this is a real chaotic depiction of a pitched battle between two armies at the time. But there's also a really interesting subplot, a story within the chaos that we can pick out about the capture and execution of the Elamite king. It starts here. The Elamite king and his son, Taman and Tamaritu, fall from their chariot, which had collapsed. Taman loses his royal hat. Cuts to the next scene. They both get up. Taman's got his hat back, but he's been wounded by an arrow, which has hit him in the back. And so they try and flee towards a forest, but to no avail, they're soon surrounded by Assyrian soldiers. So the wounded Taman is kneeling down and he's telling his son to pick up the bow and resist. The son gets hit over the head with a mace, and a Syrian soldier cuts Taman's head off. The heads are carried back, so that's King Taman's head being carried back by an Assyrian soldier, and they bring the heads back up to the Assyrian camp, where they're doing a head count. 
and there's some pro-Assyrian Elamites in the tent inspecting the heads to identify the king and his son. And it's whisked off back to Assyria in a cart to Ashurbanipal. As you may have noticed, the scenes jump around and the figures are repeated in time and space. So how do we tell what's going on? Well, the Assyrians, luckily for us, left these sort of captions, inscriptions, much like a cartoon strip explaining the story as it unfolds. So here we have an Elamite noble on the floor, wounded with arrows, and a Syrian soldier stands over him, and there's an accompanying caption, and he's basically saying, come and make a good name for yourself, cut off my head and bring it to your lord. The battle scene is very much a propaganda statement as well. You don't see any Assyrian soldiers wounded or dying. They are the victors. The Edomites, on the other hand, are wounded. They're sprawled across the battlefield. Some are beheaded, vultures and carrying birds pick at their remains. Okay, so what happened next? Luckily, we have these reliefs that tell us the aftermath of the battle. Here, we have a scene that takes place in Elam, and then a separate scene at the top takes place back in Assyria. So in the bottom scene, victorious Assyrians lead the puppet ruler, that sort of sanctuary in Assyria, to the Elamites to install him as king. The Assyrian eunuch, who's shown without a beard, holds the puppet king by the wrist and leads him towards the Elamites who commanded the city and bowed down before him. And if you notice, the face, the image of the Papagula has been hacked away. And when Nineveh finally fell and was sacked, the invading armies sought out images such as these and defaced them to remove their power. At the bottom of the scene, we have the River Ulai which continues from the earlier relief with the dead Elamite soldiers floating downstream. Back in Assyria, a triumph takes place. Ashurbanipal is shown in his chariot. Again, his image has been chipped away and the city is sacked. And he's got two visiting ambassadors from the nearby kingdom of Urartu who come to greet him. Ashurbanipal parades two Elamites holding writing tablets and these contain rude messages from King Taman, the Elamite usurper king to Ashurbanipal. So he's showing them off to the Iratians as justification to why he attacked Elam. Here again, we see the same two ambassadors. And this time, they're witnessing the humiliation of two captives. These two figures supported the Elamite king. Ashurbanipal's army went and captured the ruler and his family, and brought them back to Assyria in chains. Here we see the Assyrians placing the heads of Taman and another noble over their necks, and they're made to walk around the city where they're humiliated, slapped, and spat upon. The ambassadors from Aratu appear a third time, and this occasion they're witnessing the grisly spectacle but two more captives are having their tongues removed before being staked to the floor and flayed alive. And that was the punishment 
or treason for opposing Ashurbanipal. And the ambassadors would have witnessed this spectacle as a statement of power from Ashurbanipal to say, look, this is what happens when you mess with me. If you want to find out Okay, so <laughs> that was kind of a grisly, but uh, so is chapter two of Nahum and uh, going into chapter three, because we have the description of, uh, of the invading army. Um, just real quick, just to give you a little bit of background. So what happened? So remember, Nahum is uh, giving his oracle, his prophecy during the reign of Ashurbanipal, which is uh, arguably uh, the height of the Assyrian Empire, seems to be. And yet, after Ashurbanipal dies, uh, there, the, the kingdom falls into a series of civil wars, which allowed vassal states and neighboring states to rise up against them, which included the Chaldeans, who then combined with the Babylonians, and then also the Medes, who had been a constant uh, thorn in the side of Assyria. They combined together, and ultimately, they uh, defeated the Assyrians and took Nineveh in 612. Um, but like we said, this was probably probably around, uh, oh, I don't know, six, 630 or so. So, uh, you know, 20, 30 years before the fall of, uh, of Nineveh. I wanted to just also draw your attention to that river that the um, um, curator was talking about, the river Ulai, U-L-A-I. That appears in the Bible someplace that you might remember. It's in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is standing on the shore of what he calls the Ulai Canal. And that's where above the river, he has these huge visions that are contained in Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3. So um, can I talk about the taunt song yeah, now? Go. Okay. So in chapter 2, this taunt song that comes against Nineveh from Nahum um, man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself. It's all for nothing. You know, now it's Nineveh's turn. Now it's a serious turn. All those things that they did are now coming against them. Um, the invading army is dressed in red with red shields, with chariots, with spears. You saw some other um, armaments as well. Um, some Bible translations will say that they're not just red, but they're reddened right? So maybe they're spattered with blood and with gore and with, with flesh. Um, the warriors are quick and flashy. There's confusion as the invaders breach the protective gate. And then by contrast, um, as they're rushing around, like the king in verse five, the king gives orders to his officers. They, they're stumbling around. It's like they're moving in slow motion. They're, they're confused. They're kind of paralyzed. You know, they're, they're scared. They're panicked. And I think you could see some of that in the um, uh, in the the descriptions and in the depictions. Uh, Nineveh has been like a calm pool of water, and now all the water is being drained away. And she says, "Stop, stop!" But nobody comes back. None of them come back. And instead, there's just soldiers plundering everywhere, taking all the treasure. Everything is being decimated. And then look at verse ten. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, loins shake, every face, every face grows pale. You know, they're just absolutely uh, devastated and panicked and scared. You know, it's like one of the, uh, that feeling you can just feel in your gut. You're overwhelmed because you know what's coming because you've done it before to somebody else. And now you know exactly how it's going to play out against you as well. 
and finally, in the taunt song, we also have um, a, a mockery uh, that includes, uh, that involves lions. So uh, in 11, where now is the lion's lair, the feeding ground of the young lions? So Assyria is like a lion uh, whose den is now empty. He used to go and tear flesh and maul whatever it wanted and strangle prey and bring it home like to, to the citizens of Nineveh, just bring in all the treasures of the empire, all of the, um, the, the treasures that they've looted um, or... Uh, what what um, other nations have have paid to them uh, for for safety, and so now all of that it's for nothing. That's all going to go away. It's all going to be plundered. So you recall in the first video, she the the curator spoke about the the importance of the lion hunt, and these were staged events, uh, carefully orchestrated to show the king as the great powerful hunter and protector. And, uh, and of course, like we, like we saw in the reliefs. And uh, so now Nahum apparently knows of this and the, the importance of the lion in their culture. And, uh, um, and we believe this is a winged lion, not a bull. Uh, if you can see the, the, the claws at the bottom. Um, so the, the king is portrayed as strong like a lion and yet now their, their den has no food and uh, they can't provide for their cubs. Uh, even. So in chapter three, he continues with his uh, his oracle against the city. And um, uh, you, you probably saw in my previous slide, it, part of chapter two, it, it suggests that the river has opened up. Some scholars think that the, the Tigris River may have actually flooded the city. So you had a natural disaster and all of the problems that attend that, that could have weakened the city's defenses as well. And that might have contributed to why the, 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 the leading fighters were and the, the leading army of the world was ineffective. Um, but Again, Nahum here says, right, woe to the bloody city in 3.7. He identifies it as Nineveh. So up until 3.7, we didn't even know it was technically, we didn't know it was Nineveh until he specifically says it. But you have the sights and the, the sounds and sights of war. You hear uh, chariot wheels, galloping horses, swords are flashing. You know, there's, uh, there's the smell of death in the air. You see dead bodies everywhere. It's gruesome. It's frightening. And, um, and ultimately, the city will be shamed. Um, the, the language of three, four through six is particularly... Uh, lurid. Okay, yes, I'll use that <laughs> word. Uh, lurid. Um, and uh, it speaks of the harlot and her, the sorceress. And she's going to be humiliated. She's going to be degraded publicly. And uh, this is an interesting question because you say is... Is the harlot Nineveh itself, or is it a reference to the Assyrian goddesses who had made their way into Israel and Egypt, uh, as we talked about before? It might be both. Uh, it surely is a personification of the city, but it might also be a reference to like Asherah, for example. Um, interestingly, I highlighted that, but no one cares. Like Assyria had a bad reputation. Everyone hated Assyria. They, they were constantly having uh, vassal kingdoms rise up against them, as we saw that Elamite, Elam was, uh, the, uh, the Medes were, uh, the Babylonians did, the, the Chaldeans did, the Egyptians did in most cases. And so it was just bad. 
Um, in 3.8, we, we have uh, a reference to the city No Amman, uh, how it was a fortified city. It was on the, on the River Nile. This is a reference to Thebes, uh, or, uh, and it fell in 664, a great city where the, the tomb of Tutankhamun is. I mean, a, 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 a massive city, the, lar the largest city of the ancient world at its, at its time, or, or uh, it even surpassed Memphis. Uh, so it fell, and Nahum refers to it as even, even Thebes can fall, so surely can so, so can Nineveh. Yeah, you're, yep. you're never too big to fall. <laughs> yep. So, all right. So a serious time is coming and is here, um, starting from uh, starting from verse um, 12 and basically through like 17, 18. There's this this um, kind of literary feature that's called uh, word stitching that happens. We saw this before in Hosea as well, where there you know kind of words are connected like one verse apart, a couple of verses apart, and it just goes like that throughout the passage. And I think Nahum does a really nice job here in in his uh, in his poetry. So if you start with verse 12, uh, your fortresses are like fig trees. When shaken, they fall. And then um, he talks about the the gates and fire that will devour the gates. Um, the city is vulnerable, they're ripe for picking, and they'll be absolutely devoured. They'll be devoured um, just like figs are devoured. They'll be devoured by the sword, devoured by fire. They'll be devoured like, like the locusts come and devour. He starts to, to kind of play on the idea of locusts, and we've seen this idea, um, uh, like kind of a, a metaphor of locusts used um, in the past in Joel, and it's almost like um, we're sort of closing a loop, you know, uh, with Assyria. So now things are turned on Assyria. So um, there's kind of this image of invaders devouring the city um, like, like locusts. Uh, and even if Nineveh were numerous as locusts, it would still do no good. They're the kind of locusts, they're not devouring anymore. They're like... He says, you're, you're like locusts on a cold day sitting along the fence. You're, kind of, you're cold and sort of paralyzed. You're vulnerable. You, you can't do anything. And then when the sun comes up, like when, when the battle comes, then you spring away and you're, you're, you're nowhere. Okay. And then it kind of, it kind of moves to um, the shepherds and sheep. They're scattered. So the officers are scattered. The people are scattered like sheep and nobody cares a wit for them. And the, and the leading citizens, the, the rich people uh, of the city flee and try to escape, um, including, uh, interestingly enough, the, the, um, the king's brother, he escapes and uh, dies later. So these leading citizens abandon the, the common people who suffer the brunt of the horrors of the invading army. So like Stefana said, the interesting thing here is uh, is that uh, Nahum kind of closes the story on Assyria for us uh, with this reference to locusts. Remember, it was Assyria that was the locust invading army coming in, uh, swooping in and destroying. And uh, and so locust at that time was the imagery. Uh, Assyria as a locust swarm was imagery of of an invading army conquering, destroying, devastating, and 
and was an instrument of God's judgment on his own people for their turning away, for their idolatry. Now, he, uh, Nahum takes that imagery of Assyria as a locust and turns it on its head. Suddenly, being like a locust means fleeing, uh, being lethargic, not responding appropriately, and ultimately the defenses falling apart uh, for the city. Um, so he says its end is complete. So I thought it was interesting. I thought that's, that's, that, that use of locusts is quite compelling and interesting, and it sort of drives home what we might say the theological importance of Nahum, right? Because most of Nahum, when we read it, I mean, it starts with praise to God and a description of God, like Stefana said, as a fearsome warrior. But then it sort of, most of it is just about this city is going to fall. It's a powerful city. It's a big deal for it to have this oracle against it. But still, a lot of it is just this. So what, is, what does this mean for us? Well, it, it portrays God then as obviously powerful and sovereign and just, as we said before. He will punish sin. And of course, the gospel, part of the gospel is that God is just and he does punish sin. It's just that he takes the punishment on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, humans freely sin and are guilty for their sins, right? Um, that's part of what Nahum is proclaiming here. So the Assyrians are guilty for their sins, both their own sins and uh, their sins in, in their own lifestyle and their own idolatry, but also the sins that they perpetrated against Judah, which I think is uh, against Judah and against God's people, which is particularly Nahum's concern at the beginning when he says they will, you will no longer be uh, uh, bothered by this oppressor, right? So God used them to judge his people, but they were still guilty of the sins that they committed against his people, even while being used. This theme of God using people's own sinful desires to bring about his uh, judgment is going to come up again when we talk about Habakkuk in a couple of weeks. So God preserves his people. Here's again that covenant notion, right? He preserves his people. That's part of the message of the destruction of Nineveh is that even <coughs> though these evil kingdoms arise, they will fall and they fall when God chooses for them to fall. He is sovereign over them and he is going to always protect his people. God is merciful and gracious, right? Uh, again, he preserves his people. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. And then, of course, again, God's covenant still, still stands. Despite, uh, just even despite the message of Joel's, uh, the message of judgment that Joel brought, right? We said within Joel, there was still a protection and a, mes a message of protection, a message of love, a message of restoration. It's here again in Nahum at the beginning, God's restorative power for Israel and Judah. Uh, but all, and, and part of that is being realized in his judgment on Nineveh. Um, and I'm sorry, were you going to say something? You I, was look just, like you were just... well, I was just going to say that, um, so when you're having gospel conversations with folks who say, well, I just can't believe in God because I read the book of Nahum and I see what it says there, God's always angry, then you will be able to know what is in the book of Nahum and point them to the book of Jonah and explain to them how God had pursued Assyria 
because of his great compassion, how he had been slow to anger, you know, like over a century, um, uh, that they had an opportunity to follow God's ways and did not. And I mean, even within the context of the ancient Near East and ancient Near East warfare, Assyria was by far the worst and the most uh, inhumane. Barbaric, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's sort of closing the chapter on Assyria now. We've been talking about Assyria a lot uh, yeah, throughout this, throughout the Minor Prophets, but we're, uh, we're kind of done with Assyria now. They're uh, ended as a kingdom. So next week. So next week, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. You have to read the whole book for next week. <laughs> That's a relatively short book. Uh, quick question. The reference early on to Judah, um, and you sort of talked about it a little bit, but so this is, this was, or help me understand, I, I think I do understand, but just verify that uh, this was just talking about the Assyrians, of course, uh, do eventually conquer the northern kingdom, but they also harassed and, and I guess, made threats to, to Judah as well. Is that, is that basically what that's referring to? Yes. So, right. So you remember um, we, we mentioned this the other week when uh, Hezekiah was king. So this is, from Nahum's perspective, we're going back uh, to Assyrian kings. About, we're going back about 40 years uh, when the Assyrians came down and they took many of the cities of Judah in the southern kingdom and they threatened Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, we have an account in, um, in Second Kings of the interaction between uh, Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria at the time, his envoy and Hezekiah. You, you recall they were saying uh, in, in, the, uh, in Aramaic, in, in yeah, Aramaic, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna destroy the city. We're gonna starve you out. Your people are gonna suffer. And Hezekiah said, you know, don't talk in the in the language of the common tongue. Talk, you know, in in the language that you know we can. And he said, oh no, I want them to hear this. They need to know. And uh, and that's when Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, hey, let's let's pray. <laughs> and uh, they spent a night praying. And I I don't think it says fasting, but I you know you can imagine them fasting as well. And uh, God sends an angel and he wipes out 185,000 of the Assyrian army, we're told. And um, even in even in Sennacherib's records, it doesn't say that an angel came and killed their soldiers, but they, they do report that they threatened Jerusalem, they had to return home, and, um, and they, they did not return to take the city. Now, also, though, historically, what happens is Hezekiah does ultimately pay tribute. So he, uh, he does pay tribute and is forced to pay tribute. But it seems like um, that's, what, that's what Nahum's talking about then, is they, they were a constant threat. Assyria was, was the dominant kingdom of the region, was forcing people to pay tribute, and may have been, you know, let's say, uh, trying to uh, force their religion on their vassal kingdoms as well, which, of course, would have been a problem for uh, or should have been a problem for Judea or for Judah. So if you are interested in like some of the things that we uh, showed you in the videos, um, you can go online to the British Museum where they have all of these Assyrian reliefs 
And, um, you, you know, you can see some more stuff there a whole lot on the lion hunts. Um, that was a very, very popular theme. Um, you can also see something interesting about a Judean city that was uh, taken by Assyria in 701 BC, and that is the city of Lachish, which is a Judean city. Um, there was a, a siege there, and it's also recorded in some of these, um, uh, you know, depicted in some of these friezes that uh, decorated one of the palaces. And you can see that from the British Museum as well. And you can see like uh, Judean figures in, you know, different kind of dress uh, than some of these other ancient folks. And you can see them um, being, being deported, being taken away on, on camels and ox carts and stuff like that with their kids. And it's, um, it's, it's very interesting. And that was under, that was under Sargon, right? The second Sennacherib's Sennacherib. father. That was Sen under Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Oh yeah. yeah, that's 705. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So the, the freeze on, the, I mean, the, the depiction um, uh, about Lachish has to do with um, Sennacherib watching all the booty that was taken from that Judean city that passes in front of him. All right. Well, why don't we close in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of uh, your justice, your truth, your holiness, and your mercy. We thank you for uh, Nahum and uh, what he tells us of, of your covenant faithfulness to your people and uh, your love for uh, all of us, even, uh, even despite our sinfulness. Lord, we pray that we as your people would uh, honor you with our thoughts, with our resources, with our time, and uh, with our lives, and uh, that we would reach out to our friends who don't know you. May we share with them the love of Christ this week. We do pray your blessings on our services as we plan and on the preparations, and we pray that your spirit would work in and through them and in and through us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.